Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. On. Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I am your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to ask us a question on the air, please go to askbillnye.com and submit your question, and I hope you make it on the air. Once again today, I am joined, of course, by my dear friend, longtime colleague and co-worker, science writer, editor, and still a friend, Corey S. Powell. <laughs> greetings, Corey. Oh, greetings, Bill. Now, Corey. Bill. I'm of a certain age. I was 12 years old when people first walked on the moon. I was on my knees watching a black and white journal electric television. When you hear people of my age talk about this moment, we all have the same story. It was astonishing. It was the future. It was uh, something that seemed impossible and fantastically dangerous yet. Because it was NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, everybody figured it was going to work, that these guys were going to do it. And this was part of the intense optimism of that time. If people could walk on the moon by uh, dint of extraordinary effort and focus, we could probably accomplish anything. And this moon landing and the subsequent moon landings are held up as this turning point in human history. But, you know, Bill, when you were describing the Apollo program, I'm just a little bit younger. I, I, have, uh, I have older brothers, and so I had hand-me-down science books when I was a kid. And I was reading all these books about, oh, in the future, humans will walk on the moon. We'll have cities at the bottom of the sea. We'll have space colonies. I remember that first thing, like, we're going to walk on the moon someday, but I just saw that happen on TV. And it really had that sense that, you know, the future is coming at us really fast, and if that could happen, then sure, the cities under the sea and the space stations and all those other things would happen too. But why, Corey? Why do we continue to be fascinated with space? Why do we bother? What What is it we want to go back? It's a, it's a great question. Go back. I, I think, you know, certainly for, for me, with uh, my nostalgia perspective, you know, I, I didn't quite realize until I went back and looked at some some documentaries from the time there was a lot of opposition to the Apollo program, even as it was happening. A lot of people saying, you know, why are we wasting all this money sending people to the moon when there is, you know, there, there's violence and there's hunger and there's strife here on Earth? I was at the Astronautical Congress in India, Hyderabad, India, a few years ago. And Indian students were asking the same thing of their space program 
uh, directors? And the answer is the same. It brings out the best in us. Space exploration uh, just makes us uh, feel good about the cosmos and our place within it. And as I say, when we explore space, two things, when we explore anything, two things are going to happen, Corey. First of all, you're going to make discoveries. You're going to find things you didn't expect to find, whether you're exploring deep space or your backyard. You're going to make discoveries. And the other thing is you're going to have an adventure. I'm, I'm going to add a, a, a couple thoughts, or maybe a little bit parallel to that. Uh, one is there's a, there's a psychological value to space exploration. I and mean, we look at all the different global problems that we face right now. Uh, you look at climate change. You look at, at, at biodiversity and, and environmental degradation. You look at nuclear arms control. And anything that has global implications, one of the biggest obstacles to doing something about it is the lack of a global psychology. People think locally. They think nationally. It's very hard to think internationally. Are you proposing globally. a world government and a world order run by the oligarchs of world orderness? Uh, that sounds kind of nice, but no, that's actually not what I'm <laughs> suggesting. But but uh, space exploration gets people to think globally. It, it is you know it is inherently a, a global psychology project, and you know you have these images that come back of the Earth from space and other planets, and you know galaxies from deep space from Hubble and. Whenever I see people look at those, there is a, a You're reaction. watching people watch. I am watching people watch. I love to see how people respond to these things. And it's it's fascinating. Um, you know, there's just there's this automatic um, kind of innate wonder that is activated. And there is a sense of commonality that, that everybody looks at the same sky. Everybody looks down at this same borderless planet. Uh, I think that's, you know, getting to that psychology is extremely important for all the other you know, kind of nitty gritty local politics things that happen. And the other thing, the other thing I would argue is that, uh, you know, as a, as an education project, space exploration is actually extremely cost effective. Oh my goodness. I mean, you look at the total, NASA's total planetary science budget is about two and a half billion dollars, which is not at all a small amount of money and certainly needs to be justified. But, you know, the Department of Education has a budget of about 64 billion the uh, Department of Defense, the stuff the United States spends on military uh, military purposes is about $700 billion. So planetary exploration, tiny budget by comparison. But then think about the effect that it has in inspiring people to go into the sciences, teaching people to think about engineering problems, teaching people to think about kind of other perspectives of how you solve things. Well, just we all watch Star Trek, Star Wars, whatever, as we all believe in the very strong possibility that there's there are other life forms on these other worlds. I feel it is that moment in the show when we should take, we could take calls from our uh, beloved listeners. We could, and I think we should, and I think we will. In fact, I think we have uh, Raul on the line, and... Uh, Raul, are you there? Where, where are you calling from? What's uh, what's going on over there? Hi, fellas. Uh, this is Raul. I'm here. I'm calling in from Monterey, California. Monterey, California. Uh, close to space, yes? Uh, yeah, pretty close, I'd say. Uh, pretty rainy, cloudy days over here uh, recently. And um, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Bill, I'm a big fan. Thanks for doing what you do. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Raul. Do you have a question? I do. All right, Bill. So with all the recent Mars exploration, here's my question. 
How will we go about putting colonies on Mars and eventually terraforming the planet? And do you see us trying those terraforming practices here on Earth first to try and sustain the longevity of the planet? What kind of timetable do you see for this? Uh, Raul, you're asking a fabulous and uh, almost traditional question. Just that we even, Corey, just that we even have the word terraform, that's even a meaningful word is a remarkable tribute to the effectiveness of space exploration. The idea, everybody, is to make another world like ours here on Earth. I got to say it is very, very, very unlikely because Mars doesn't really have enough gravity to hold on much of an atmosphere, let alone create entire ecosystems that we have here on Earth that have taken four and a half billion years to develop. Do we want to settle Mars? So what would a Martian settler do? What would be the Martian economy that would enable settlers to settle and carry on? It's a very, very difficult thing. Everybody, as I say all the time, you know, if you, if you go to Mars, the sec, first of all, you'll find there's very, very little water. There's some water in the soil. There's some ice under the sand. Okay. You have to find a way to melt it. You might have to purify it. Uh, yeah, it's got perchlorates and other things in it that okay. are kind of nasty. Then you will quickly notice that there's nothing to eat. Now, if it turns out there are Martian microbes under the soil someplace, I'm open-minded but skeptical there'll be enough of them to really sustain your settlement for very long. And then the other thing that's key, huge, when you take off your space helmet— You will suffocate in a moment. There is no air. It will kill you instantly. And so when this this romantic idea of going to this other planet and settling it and the idea that we've screwed up our own planet to which we are perfectly suited, the idea that since we've screwed up Earth so much, we got to go live on Mars and verb terrify it. Terraform it. Terraform it. Terraform it is terrifying. It just won't work, everybody. It sounds really romantic. Okay, Bill, hold on. I not my style, b- b- but I will try to hold on. Okay, you, you've uh, you've now, now that you've made your case, I, I think we need to go back to Roland and say, was this an is this a desire of yours? Do you imagine that would you want to live on Mars? Could you imagine that this is something that you might do in your lifetime? Uh, I would love to stay here on Earth, but you know, I see, you know, when you look at the Hubble t- uh, Space Telescope, you see that. Uh, there's a lot of dead universes out there, dead galaxies out there. So I'm thinking at some point we might have to leave this place. I mean, we're going to be a dead galaxy. Well, so, no, I think that, in a dead galaxy. Th- this is this is a question that comes up a lot. I, I was on a um, I was on a, a panel for the for the, the National Geographic show Mars, and uh, Michio Kaku was one of the panelists. He's and, a, a, phys- a futurist. He's a futurist and a physicist uh, at City College here in New York, and he's a big proponent of the. Uh, Planet B idea that that you know in order to survive long term humans need to be a multi planet species and I think there's some merit to the idea. The question is what is the long term because the long term we're talking about here is you know over millions of years. Uh, it's not over you know decades. And uh, you know if you look at any reasonable idea of how you would terraform Mars, let's go back and you know, back to your question of you know how we take care of the Earth. Well, you know with Seven and a half billion people uh, polluting like crazy, uh, not watching what they're doing. We've managed to change our climate a little bit. I mean, enough to make trouble, but not really a whole lot, not enough to transform it into a totally different planet. 
the idea that we're going to like go over to Mars with you know what a hundred people and some trucks and uh, nice, and, and, cool, really sexy trucks, really sexy, yeah, with with all with corporate logos side by side with uh, government logos. The idea that that in, in in some reasonable you know useful human amount of time transform the climate of Mars. I, I think the thought process is really interesting in trying to understand what makes a planet habitable or not habitable and what do we need to do to take care of the Earth. But as a practical matter to do that to Mars, uh, even if morally you wanted to do it, I think technologically it's a really, really high reach. A heavy lift. A heavy lift. But that's a great question, Earl, and a very common question. I'm really glad that you got to us first with that. Thank you. But, uh, uh, Corey. Bill. Can we roll down there? Uh, we can roll down, but uh, before we do that, Bill, do you think there's life on Mars? I hope there is. And by that I mean I strongly feel that we should, we, humankind, should invest in looking for it. This is to say the uh, every year, every 10 years rather, the scientific community, led nominally by NASA, the world's largest space agency, gets together and writes something they call the Decadal Survey. The next, what are we going to do the next decade? And for quite a while, a couple decadal cycles, the scientific community has been very interested in bringing back rocks from Mars. In the same way, we brought people brought back rocks from the moon, and a robot brought back rocks from the moon. And we're still learning extraordinary things from those moon rocks. Yes, and people are up there, or spacecraft rather, are on the moon right now, exploring and learning even more about the moon and our relationship to it and our origin and our place in space. Uh, and with this in mind, the samples still have not been brought back from the moon, uh, from, from the Mars. Mars. I just misspoke. The samples have still not been brought back from Mars, for crying out loud. Spacecraft have been landing there since 1976, and the geologists want these rocks. Okay, let's get the Rocks back. Let's bring them back. Let's get her done. All right. I think this is going to go well with our next questioner. His name is Justin. Welcome to the show. Tell me about yourself, where you're calling from, and what's on your mind. Hi. Uh, like you said, my name's Justin. I'm calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we like to joke that a little climate change wouldn't be the worst thing. <laughs> well, it depends which um, way it goes. If it starts flooding all the time, but, that'll uh, suck. Yeah. But lead on, Justin. Take absolutely. it. Absolutely. Negative 10 degrees is pretty rough sometimes. My question to you guys is this. Um, yeah, I was watching not too long ago an episode of uh, Bill Nye Saves the World. And you guys were discussing the possibility of life on Mars. Um, if we actually found out that there was life on Mars, what would be, like, the practical benefit to finding that out? I'm okay oh. personally with finding out if there is or was life on Mars, you know, just for the sake of broadening our understanding of our solar system and our history there. But could there be a more tangible result that we could point to in order to justify the cost of learning that information, like a, like a return on investment sort of thing? So, there you go. You have hit the nail headwise. In other words, if you only do exploration for the sake of financial return, you probably won't make very many discoveries. And the models through this, the models for this in history are uh, remarkable. What was the practical value for Copernicus discovering or pointing out or showing that the earth goes around the sun, not the sun around the earth? Keep in mind that the 
Earth-centric model of the solar system with the Earth in the middle and the sun going around worked well enough. But when Copernicus showed that the planets go around the sun, then people were able to navigate over extraordinary distances and realize the Earth is a big ball and sail all over the place. And we're all wearing clothes made in another continent because our ancestors figured this out. So this is what's happening right now. We are learning about the map of the cosmos and our place within it. The practical value is not clear except that if we discovered life on Mars, it would change human history. (laughs) Everybody would feel completely differently about what it means to be a living thing in the cosmos. The second question you would ask, is it really alive? That's the first question. The second question, what's it like? Is it a microbe? Does it have DNA? Is it some other thing like uh, like uh, the the crystalline things in the uh, Andromeda strain? Like, is it is it a yeah. form of life like ours? Right. Is it what related be, to life on Earth? Would or, it have or medical are we, value? Are we related to it? Yes. Do 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 do. Now Mars is a smaller planet, cooled <laughs> off sooner. Did life start there first? This is a question worth answering. And so, just in the U.S., talking about NASA. Planetary science is 9% of the NASA budget. And you ask people on the street, uh, uh, let's ask you, Justin. Okay. What do you think, what do you feel the fraction of the U.S. budget uh, NASA is? Is that an English sentence? How much of of the federal budget is NASA's budget? Let's say 10%, 5%, 1%. I have no idea. If I were to take a shot in the dark, I'd say 5% yeah. at most. It's 0.4%. It's less than a tenth of what most people think it is. And NASA is asked to do more and more extraordinary things. They want um, uh, flying planes, supersonic planes that don't have sonic booms. They want air traffic to be better. Oh, and Bill, they I want to clarify on that point. So NASA is 0.4% of the federal budget. And then planetary exploration is, is less than ten percent of that. Is nine percent of the NASA budget. So it's zero point zero three six percent of the federal budget. And this is where discoveries that are made change the world. I mean, and the example for everybody: you've probably received a postcard or used a screensaver that is uh, been taken an image taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble Space Telescope started uh, out pretty yeah, expensive. Yeah, that's the background on my computer right now. Yeah, there you there go. You go. But it's been flying for 25 years, and it's still working. And we now take it for granted. We take these images for granted. Space exploration brings out the best in us, and it changes the world. So I hope, Justin, when it's your time to vote, when it's your time to write to your congressman, senator, you'll support space exploration, especially planetary science, because I believe we are on the verge. We are on the cusp. We are about to build spacecraft that can be sent to Mars and Europa, the moon of Jupiter with twice as much ocean water as the Earth, and after that, Enceladus, the moon of Saturn that has a big ocean. And jets of water ice squirting into the space. (laughs) And uh, if you have water for four and a half billion years, maybe there's something alive. And what is the nature of of that living thing? So, Justin, I think it's a a great question, and... uh, you know, it, it it cuts right to the heart of you know the practicalities and impracticalities of space. In a way, both of those are are justifications for doing it. So, thank you so much for calling. No, thank you for answering my question. 
Stick around for more science rules after this. Home isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Like curling up in a comfy chair as you watch the world go by. Good afternoon. Which is why at Delta, our people do our best to make you feel at home long before you get there. Delta, keep climbing. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Science Rules is back. I guess I just wanted to sort of get back to this core idea that, look, if we found life on Mars and we were studying its genetics, we might learn, you know, incredible things that have medical relevance. But if we found life on Mars, it would also completely change the way we think about life on Earth. And I feel like that psychological impact would spill over into so many other things that we do. In, in the same way, uh, we all accept that there almost certainly are planets around other – I mean, rather, we have shown there are planets around other stars – and we all accept that there are almost certainly alien forms of life out there somewhere. Right. And that gets incorporated into our popular culture and it changes, you know, you know Star Wars and Star Trek. Think about how many, you know. You know References kind of, per day. Yeah. Think per of how, like, how many young, you know, budding scientists have been inspired by seeing those things thinking, oh, you know, can I make any of that stuff be real? Well, just if you hear somebody say, beam me up. Or there's no intelligent life on this planet as a hilarious, ironic comedy <laughs> joke. And, or if you hear somebody say, he's dead, Jim. These are all references that come from science fiction. And we all, I won't say take them for granted. We don't have to. They're part of our culture. And it's a result of the successful exploration of space. And still, to this day, people will say, if we can put a man on a moon, why can't we blank whatever that thing is? Because it was an extraordinary effort that uh, required inventing new alloys, new ways to generate electricity, new systems to keep people alive in distant, cold environments. It's an amazing thing. And we have another caller. Oh, good. Uh, so uh, shall I make it so and uh, bring in the well next, next caller? <laughs> make uh, it so, make number it. one. Thank you. Thank you, Captain. Uh, so we have Colby here. And... Uh, Colby, I, I cannot wait to hear what your question is because we're on a we're on a roll here. Colby, uh, what's what is on your mind and where are you calling us from? Uh, so, hello guys, uh, hello. thanks for taking my call. Um, I was actually born right next to Raul in Seaside, California, but now I'm currently uh, in Riverside, California, pursuing a PhD at UC Riverside. Yeah, UC Riverside. What are you doing for your PhD? Uh, I'm studying, actually, uh, planetary science, I would say. It's a mixture of um, exoplanets and using uh, knowledge of planets in our solar system to apply that to exoplanets. Oh, fabulous. You're, uh, wow. you're, you're right there in the hunt. But you have a question. Yeah, yeah. This is cool. You demand. What, what's your question? <laughs> uh, so it's based on Venus, which is kind of uh, what my research is surrounding right now. Um, so here it is. So given that Venus is the most similar planet to Earth in our solar system in terms of size and mass, why has U.S. space exploration neglected Venus and focused so much on Mars when study of Venus would be very useful for understanding planetary evolution and for constraining parameters for planetary habitability? 
Yeah, Corey. Okay, Colby, you have just hit on a subject that is near and dear to my heart, so thank you for asking this. <laughs> no problem. So we know the pieces of Mars were knocked loose and came to Earth, uh, and it's possible that if life ever arose on Mars that it could have seeded the early Earth. But here's the thing. Uh, it, it's generally pretty easy to get rocks to go inward, closer to the sun. Early impacts on Earth must have sent Earth rocks to Venus, and a lot of our current studies of Venus suggest that Venus was actually a fairly mild and habitable planet, probably for even like the first billion or two billion years of its existence. First two billion years two, of the solar system. Two billion years. We, have, we know there was life on Earth. We know there were impacts. We know that the Earth rocks were flying to Venus. Was there life on Venus? Uh, you know, that is a great question. And then at some point, Venus went from being a nice place to being, let's face it, it's a hellhole. It's not very nice there right now. But if that was a gradual process... Life tends to adapt to changing circumstances. Uh, we know that there are microbes that can live on sulfur. Could there be living bacteria, the descendant of ancient Earth life, uh, living in the clouds of Venus? We don't know. We just don't know. It's not that far away, and we don't know. So here on Earth, we have phytoplankton in the ocean. We also have aeroplankton. These are organisms that live in the sky and get blown around. And they remain up there because if you're small enough— the air is so thick, it's like dropping the pearl into the bottle of shampoo. It just doesn't sink. Floats around. So every uh, 10 years at the decadal survey. Ah, uh, the decadal survey. Every few years when they have proposals at NASA, people show up with pro uh, proposals to send missions to Venus. So, Colby. What I want you to do when you get your PhD is write a mission proposal that NASA will embrace, will be reasonable cost, and will make discoveries that will change the course of human history. Now, all the geologists who get involved in Mars exploration say a key to Mars exploration is mobility. This is to say the rovers, just in general, do more geology than stationary spacecraft, like the Phoenix lander or the uh, InSight lander, which is going to do cool things and relies on being stable for its uh, exploration, or stationary, rather, for its exploration. But <clears throat> I would love, we would all love, two kinds of missions to Venus, one that could go to the surface and survive a spacecraft, and then, as you said, some more balloons in the clouds. You know, Russians sent balloons in the clouds. The Russians sent the Venera spacecraft to the surface of Venus. It lasted, they lasted about 45 minutes, I guess. Uh, the, the last ones lasted longer than that. I think they went as long as like three or four hours. Three or four hours, way to go. Yeah, but the no. idea, go you Soviets. probably, Colby, you probably all are all over this, but the idea is to have a Stirling cycle cooler, <laughs> to have a, a, a this cool th air conditioner type gizmo built into the spacecraft that would carry heat away from the instruments out to the environment. It could be amazing. So get your PhD, Colby. Yeah, there, there are such cool concepts this out there. mission. There, Change there, the course of human history. There's a concept for a, a, a low-cost mission that would basically just scoop through the upper atmosphere of Venus. It doesn't even need to land. And you'd get samples, and you could start learning about whether there's you know, any sign of organics. And even if, you, even if there's no life, you'd learn a lot about the, the formation and, and the history of the planet. It's a really cool mission. We just need people who are excited enough about it to keep agitating and pushing and for JAXA, it. And ja JAXA, Japanese Aerospace, sent Hayabusa out there. Still there? Yeah. And uh, But it had some, the mission had some difficulties. But they did take another shot at exploring Venus. And here's hoping we do yet another another in the very near future. 
Yeah. Thank you, Dana. Th- yeah. I mean, thank I called, you, Colby. Thank, thank I you, was Colby. kidding. That yes. was a joke. Thank you so much really for that funny. call. <laughs> thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. And and you know, it, it I mean, it, it cuts back to this core concept that there is so much that we don't know out there. Uh, the fact that the very nearest planet in the solar system is largely a mystery to us. It tells us, you know. You know, sometimes it feels like you're, you know, oh, every place has been explored. We know so much. We know so teeny, tiny, tiny, tiny what is out there. We know so little. Uh, I mean, there's so much exploring to do and so much to learn and so much expansion to do to our brains. Um, and so I think we need to go to another caller and find yes. out uh, how we're going to try to expand another brain or somebody's going to expand our brain. Uh, we have Dana here. Dana? Hey. Uh, hello, Dana. Tell, tell, Hi, tell, tell us about yourself. Where are you calling from? What is on your mind? What's going on over there? Ooh, well, I'm calling from uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I got really excited when I heard you guys were doing this because I'm a huge uh, alien nerd, I guess. <laughs> so are you are you an alien from another world or are you human? Uh, listen, I, to my knowledge, I'm human, but it would be great if I found out otherwise. Yeah, because it's that adjectival position in English that's tough. Are you an alien nerd or are you an alien nerd? I am a a nerdy for aliens, I guess. It's probably the better. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. 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 Nerdy for aliens. Uh, so you have a question. Yes. Okay. So I'm really curious what you guys think of that interstellar object, Oumuamua, that kind of came into our solar system, I believe, and caused a huge stir. I'm super curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, it caused a huge stir among those who had the technology to observe it. <clears throat> you know, a lot of these things may have passed through and no one had knew anything about it for millennia. But it's quite a thing. So everybody, this is probably not an object that fell in from the Oort cloud. That is to say, the icy bodies roughly in an enormously, enormously, enormous sphere in orbit around the sun. This was another object winging in, sliding in, flying in from some external part of the, uh, of the, our solar, from beyond our solar system. Somewhere deep between the stars, uh, off in our galaxy. So how often does this happen? Does an object like this, a rogue object like Oumuamua fly through? Every 10 years, every 110 years, every million in 10 years. We're not sure. However, just that it happened stirred up all of this wonderful science fiction style stuff. Is it actually an alien spacecraft that came through and took pictures and is leaving? Well, maybe. If it's probably another rock that has uh, this extraordinary distant and elongated orbit caused by the interaction of gravity of our solar system and another one. But it's really an amazing thing to think about, that rocks can go between star systems. So in other words, if you buy the bit that amino acids can be can survive intact on meteorites that fly in from outer space at 11 kilometers a second, most of which burns up in the atmosphere, but <laughs> nevertheless make it to the Earth's surface, that was supposed to be a spooky sound. sound. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I per- I'm sitting right here, yeah. and I'm deeply spooked. Very so. spook, spooked. Yeah. I'm scared. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, the, could these amino acids, could the chemicals or the chemistry of life make trips between stars? Now you're getting into, like, major league science fiction, and it's another situation where what turns out to really be true is wilder than what we originally imagined. Um, Dana, what do you think? 
Do you think it's an alien spacecraft or do you think it's a rock? Do you think the rock is carrying the chemicals or chemistry of living things? I mean, I would love if it was some sort of probe from, you know, another, you know, galaxy of some sort. I mean, that's in my heart. I would love that to be true. But I mean, I mean, also, if it just had organic material on it floating through and it was there was legitimacy behind that. That would be great, too. I just love the idea that it, there'd be beings elsewhere trying to scope out what's what else is going on uh, in the universe. But um, either I, I don't know. Anything is cool with me. <laughs> well, it, just, it shows you, Corey. She's just interested in it just for its own sake. It's inspiring. There's not a return on investment for her. So here, let me tell you a few things I, that I find very cool about Oumuamua. Just let me let me uh, tell you a few I, things. Wait, because I have, uh, I've thought about this about a bit, uh, thought about, it's so excited I can barely uh, speak. I'm thinking about Oumuamua here. I've thought about Oumuamua a fair bit. I've actually written about it a fair bit. And the first thing is the name itself it's really, cool. It's it's cool. It, it is a it is a Hawaiian name. It means uh, advanced advanced scout from the past. Um, whoa, whoa, dude, that's so and elderly, question, why, ancestrally so, cool. So why does it have a Hawaiian name? Because we've run out of Greek names. No, <laughs> although that's an it was observed for by the Beca Gek beca because it was discovered by the observatories in Hawaii, and you may have heard or well, if you're not familiar, there's been a sort of an ongoing controversy. Uh, Hawaii has a very, very high mountain that's a great place to put telescopes. And so for years and years, this has been one of the big uh, astronomical observation Mahalua. areas. Uh, it's, uh, it's also a sacred mountain in Hawaiian culture. And over the years, people have started to become a little more sensitive and the, the local Hawaiians have become a little bit more assertive that, you know, hey, if you're, if, you have, if you're putting observatories in our sacred land, can you at least kind of acknowledge our culture? And, you know, can we sort of make a this... A tip of the lay. Yeah. Can, yeah, can we make this into something where, uh, you know, it really feels like we're, we're exploring the universe together? And so that calling it Oumuamua is acknowledging the, the ancestral mythology of the place and extending it out into the universe. I mean, that itself is kind of cool. You know, here's this, this thing that came out, came to us from the stars, and it's kind of opening up our eyes to other cultures here on Earth. That's sort of what, that's what exploration is supposed to do. And it's doing it. And that's just the one thing you like about it. That's just it. the one thing. We're only there in one. Now, number two, <laughs> maybe this thing has amino acids. Maybe it's a spaceship. We'll get to that in a second. But look, let's take the most boring possible example of what it is. Let's say it's just, uh, you know, a rock from interstellar space. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, just? Exactly. The most boring <laughs> possible interpretation is that um, basically... We have just done interstellar travel. You don't have to go to another solar system and look around and see what's there. They're coming to us. All you have to do is watch for this stuff. And maybe next time we can build a spaceship to catch up with it and get a close look at it. The stars are coming to us. It's like Star Trek is coming to us. And we haven't even noticed it until now. So I think that's pretty damn cool. Yes. See, uh, <laughs> apparently there's a sound out there that agrees with me. Um and then, you know, this, this third idea, look, is it a spacecraft? Probably not. But the reason that uh, Avi Loeb, he's a researcher at Harvard University, and he was the one who kind of you know, pitched this idea that, hey, may, we should at least consider that maybe this thing is artificial. The reason he did that is because there's a lot of stuff about it that looks weird. Its shape is weird. The path it's following is weird. It's, it's, a, it's a very small, unusual-looking object, and it accelerated as it moved away from the sun, uh, which could just be 
part of its surface boiling off, or it could be that it was catching sunlight, like it was a it was like a solar sail, like an engineered object designed to be propelled. So, yeah, you know, look, all of those things might have natural explanations. But uh, there's a there's an old joke I, I've heard it said by Isaac Asimov. I'm not sure where it began, but it says, you know, great scientific discoveries don't begin with eureka; they begin with Huh, that's weird. It is funny. Yeah, that's Why funny. So, so look, there's there are some things about <sighs> this one weird little object that don't make sense, and that means something interesting is happening, and something we're going to learn something really cool when we figure out why. Maybe it's a spaceship. Probably it's not. But whatever we learn, uh, it's going to blow our minds open again. Yeah, and this shows you the investment in space exploration. In this case, telescopes that enabled us to even observe it. Thank you very much for your call, Dana. Thank you. So cool. I love Oumuamua. Science Rules will be right back. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. Okay, we have Ryan here. Ryan, we were traveling all through space. Uh, where are you on planet Earth, and what is your question? Hi, guys. Hey, Bill. Ryan. So I, I would like to uh, take us back into space for a moment, if oh, you don't mind. Oh, oh please. I, I welcome it. Of course. So I, I'm a lifelong flying saucer and UFO nut, and so it was awfully tempting to blow my question on that. But I'm going to resist and ask something that maybe you can have a more mm -hmm. of an answer for. So what's the current status of the Europa mission? And what are the chances, in your opinion, that when we get there and crack the surface, that we'll find life, like a big uh, empire of cuttlefish or alien lobsters? Or Europeanians, like the Europeanians. Yes. So first of all, everybody, yes. the Europa Clipper mission, as it's called, is still on track. Now, this from memory, it's gotten through phase A, which at NASA is like a thing. So we're building a spacecraft that's going to have a vault to protect its electronics as it goes slinging around uh, Jupiter and slinging around the moon of Jupiter with this icy crust and more ocean water than we have on Earth under the surface. Right. I think we should explain right here. So, so Europa is the uh, was it the third largest moon of Jupiter. Galileo observed it with his military telescope. Maybe it's the fourth largest. It's one of the four large moons. It's way bigger than the Earth's moon. Europa is one of the four large moons circling Jupiter, and Europa has an ice crust on top, but it, the cool thing is it's got ocean on the inside, yeah, like a whole lot of ocean. Discovered by Margie Kibbelson, a woman explorer. So uh, you asked about finding life under the ice. The first mission, Clipper, is just going to go slinging over the surface and try to learn a great deal more about uh, the ice and its interaction and how it, the gravity of Jupiter keeps everything liquid and uh, with squeezing every, with every orbit and so on. And right now, about the status of the Europa Clipper mission, it has been proposed to fly 
on the space launch system, the SLS, which is this huge rocket being built by NASA, be bigger than anything SpaceX, by a little bit, than anything SpaceX has right now. But because it's, or maybe just the nature of building it through a government program, it's not the highest priority for anybody, so it has had suffered a, a great many delays. It's not like the go, go, go era of Apollo. So if the space launch system is not available to launch the Europa Clipper, we'll launch it on another rocket that can take it not as fast, so the mission will just be pushed into the future. And the trouble is, the longer you wait, the orbit of Europa, the orbit of Jupiter is less favorable. So 2023 is still the goal. And then the idea would be, Ryan, to have a mission after the Clipper to go under the ice. Now, another thing for you Europanian buffs, such as myself, a very well-known U.S. congressman named John Culberson did not get reelected. And Culberson was like this one-man space program continually pitching these uh, deep space missions. But he especially loved Europa. Well said. Europa was a real focus of his. And then for those of you out there who may presume to have religious differences with me, and I've met you, keep in mind that John Culberson had a Bible on every table in his office. He was, as far as I know, a very serious Christian. Nevertheless, very, very much wanted to explore Europa and looks for signs of life. He's convinced that uh, there is life under the ice on Europa, and he's, he is not going away. John Culberson is out there. He will be around consulting on space exploration for many years to come. But that is a great question. And everybody, the cost of the Europa Clipper mission is noise. It's a cup of coffee in the U.S. government. It's a rounding error in it's, the federal yeah, budget. Yes, so we just, let's just stay focused. Let's get the SLS space launch system built. And everybody, by, by the way, getting in the political weeds, by using the space launch system, which is a rocket, that's the name of a rocket, the SLS, which is intended for human exploration beyond the moon, uh, by using that not only for human exploration but for planetary science missions, we lower the cost of everybody's mission. It's a win-win-win. So let's stay the course, voters and taxpayers. Let's make discoveries that change the course of human history. You know, if the Europa Clipper gets there and things look really promising, one of the cool things about Europa is that there appear to be uh, these episodic ventings, uh, these eruptions <laughs> of water uh, that break through the surface. Now, we don't really... We don't know a whole lot about that yet, but if we find that that's happening all the time and it's actually ocean water making its way up to the top and, and popping out, that means there are fresh samples of Europa Ocean sitting on the surface. You don't have to drill all the way through the ice. You can actually just land there and get a fresh sample of what's down below. That would be cool because that would shave decades off how long it would take and to find the, out what's going on complexity there. and also the, the, the problem associated with planetary protection it says you don't want to violate the prime directive. You don't want to take Earth microbes to Europa and screw up the Europanian ecosystem. Excellent question, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. So, Corey, Corey, uh, with all this talk about space, you know, I'm getting pretty wound up, Corey. You do sound wound up. I think I need a minute. Uh-oh. Better start the timer. So, 
everybody, people continually question the value of space exploration. All right, no matter what we explore, whether it's the sun with its unique weather that can affect our radio stations here on Earth, whether it's the moon with its extraordinary properties to influence the time to create all ecosystems in estuaries and tidal zones, whether it's Mars with its desert-like surface but ice beneath the sand that may have harbored life in ancient times, whether it's Venus that has this extraordinary atmosphere which has changed its climate, which informs us of the dangers of our own activities here on our world. If we don't explore these places, we are doomed to ignorance. We are doomed to falling behind. We are doomed to not bringing out the best in humankind. Our colleagues of this generation and future generations, Corey, this is serious business. The value of space exploration is extraordinary. You don't believe me? How many of you out there can't even tell which side of the street you're on without looking at your mobile phone? For crying out loud, that information comes from spacecraft. Without them, we wouldn't know the weather. We wouldn't know what side of the street we're on. We wouldn't be in touch with our friends. Our life would just not be as good. Space exploration is of tremendous value to everyone on Earth. Thank you, Corey. I, ah, Bill, I needed was, a minute. That was, that was good. That was good, Bill. The value of space exploration is, I think, inestimable. So if you're out there and uh, you're familiar with uh, the Planetary Society and maybe you're a supporter, thank you. If you've never heard of the Planetary Society, I am Bill Nye the CEO of the Planetary Society, which was started by the famous astronomer Carl Sagan. I took one class from Carl Sagan. As a senior, I was a mechanical engineering student. I completed my engineering requirements, took one class, took a freshman class as a senior. It changed my life. Everybody, it just gave me this perspective of our place in the cosmos that I can't let go of. So if you got nothing to do, after you're finished with listening to all these amazing Science Rules podcasts, which will enrich your life in every way, of course, be sure to check out planetary.org. We connect you with space. If you want to do something in space, we are here for you, man, or woman. We are here to make space part of your life. If you want to do something, if you want to influence U.S. Congress, Japanese Aerospace, European Space Agency, we are here for Canadian Space Agency. We are here for you. If you want to build a solar sail spacecraft, one's going to fly again that we built. If you want to just learn about the planets and other celestial bodies, we have first-class, world-class journalists that publish on our website. So you're saying this is how you could change the universe. Yeah, yeah, change the cosmos. Thanks, everybody, for listening and for listening to me talk about the Planetary Society and my passion for space exploration. As you may know, I'm Bill Nye. And I am still Corey S. Powell. Remember, when it comes to the space exploration, exploratory, spatial part of our universe, science, science rules. If you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials, as the kids call them. For when to call into the show, I'm at Bill Nye on all those things, on the Facebook, the Twitter, the, the Gram. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, a voicemail, call in at 201-472-0785, 201-472-0785. 
Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell and Corey S. Powell. Hey, that's me. With extra production from Lisa Wang. Our engineer today is Casey Holford, who is also the man who mixed and made the original theme music uh, for this show. Special thanks go to Claire Rawlinson and Ashley Warren. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer of Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Science Rules. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.